Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on the afternoon of Saturday, April 8th. I'm Tony O'Brien of Lehigh University, and with me as always is Glenn Hubbard of Columbia University. How are you today, Glenn? Great. How are you? Doing very well. So, Glenn, we talked about the failures of the Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank when they happened a few weeks ago, and we talked a bit about implications for policy and and for the banking system. Since we're a few weeks on now, maybe we have a little more perspective on what's happening and what's likely to happen. So I thought we could talk about some of the issues raised there. One is, where are we on deposit insurance? Because as we talked about, essentially Silicon Valley Bank had a bank run um, led by its large depositors because, of course, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation only insures up to a limit of $250,000 per deposit. And uh, many uh, large companies there, or tech companies that might have 10 or $100 million, had uninsured deposits. And they began to pull their money out and that forced the closure of Silicon Valley Bank. But then on, that was on a Friday, on the following Sunday, Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the Treasury, and, and uh, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, uh, ended up formally declaring that allowing those uninsured depositors to take losses would cause systemic risk to the financial system. So they have to formally declare declare that, and then uh, they effectively insured all of the deposits, meaning that even if you had $100 million in Silicon Valley Bank, you had access to your money, provided you hadn't already withdrawn it, uh, that Monday morning. So that raises the question, have we implicitly ended up with a, a system that 100% of deposits are insured? So if you have $100 million in the bank, you're you're effectively insured, even though the formal legal limit is still 250,000? Or might we see if another large bank were to fail that in fact, depositors would take some losses? Well, I think it's a great question. You know, while the authorities have resolved the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, the question of deposit insurance remains. And if you go over the arc of Secretary Yellen's comments and Chair Powell's comments, at times it's been clear and not clear whether all depositors are going to be taken care of. So we're kind of in the worst of all worlds from a depositor perspective. You don't know if the old $250,000 limit is the truth or everything is the truth or something in between. I think the way I think about it is you know, go back to what we talk about in the book is, you know, why we have banks in the first place and how, how they get organized. Banks are engaged in um, effectively maturity transformation. So they take in money largely short from depositors uh, and they lend it out to less liquid things uh, like home mortgages or commercial real estate loans or, or loans to local businesses. That's inherently a risky business. Uh, it's not too problematic if depositors are 
totally uncorrelated when they want their money back. Of course, that was part of the problem with Silicon Valley banks. Since all the depositors were essentially identical, they all wanted it back at exactly the same time. No bank can ever, can ever do that. Now, the question of why deposit insurance, why do we have it? I think there's an economics and a political economy argument for the US. The economic argument is that for smaller uh, depositors, I'd certainly put myself in that category, I don't have the energy and time to go investigate my bank. Uh, it's just not worth it to me. I don't have that much money at stake. Uh, only a large depositor would have that incentive. Uh, having a large depositor monitor a bank is good from an economic perspective because they're monitoring the high frequency information about the bank in a way that uh, I'm not as a small depositor and certainly more apparently than the Fed was or the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. In the US, there's also a political economy argument. Historically, we've had lots of small banks. We're, we have many more banks, banking firms in the United States, either absolutely or per capita than other developed countries. The UK is the only other one that's sort of an outlier like us and even it is less uh, concentrated. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that that we don't need to talk about. But in terms of the political economy, in the days where we had branching restrictions, banks held fairly undiversified loan portfolios and undiversified customer bases, leading to an argument that if you wanted that kind of a system to survive, you'd have to have deposit insurance. We saw it after the, after the Great Depression. Where do I think we're headed? I think we're going to ask some important questions. It's probably the case that the limit will go up. For example, even at the level of millions of dollars, if all it is is my weekly payroll as a medium-sized business, we probably think about that differently than some extremely wealthy individual just parking $500 million or something. So I think that's going to have to be, uh, be a discussion. But we can't make that change without also discussing bank supervision. Like, where was the bank supervision? For Silicon Valley Bank, we've learned more and more and more, and, and none of it's good. Even though Silicon Valley Bank had not crossed the $250 billion threshold, the Fed had the authority at $100 billion to require the bank to do more than it did. So I think once we start changing deposit insurance, I expect all of this to be opened up. So my guess is, long-winded answer to your question, the Fed is probably thinking, let's just hope this is stopped and we don't have to have this conversation i suspect we're going to have to have this conversation and what do yeah, you that, think yeah that that's very interesting you raised the question of supervision i've heard some people say that um large depositors may not have been relying so much on an implicit guarantee that their deposits were safe so that they may not have been thinking, oh, to heck with the 250,000, they'll never let me lose any of my, um, my deposits because it would be too disruptive to the system. It may have been less that than that they were relying on bank regulators because typically a bank regulator, a bank examiner is gonna have access to information that a large depositor wouldn't. So if I'm a somebody who is uh, running a, a tech firm in Silicon Valley, I can, you know, I can look at the, the balance sheet of the bank and, and get a sort of an overall feel for how the bank is, but I won't have the access to the details. Um, as it turned out, of course, 
uh, loan quality and things like that, that sometimes there are issues with banks, wasn't really the issue here. But in those cases, clearly the loan examiner, uh, the bank examiner rather, the, the person from the FDIC or um, from, from the Fed is gonna have a lot more information. They're gonna know, or, or they should at any rate, and I guess you're right that there is a lot of interest. In fact, I think even uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed chair at his last press conference, even he said, well, I'm not sure exactly why we didn't, in fact, detect the problems at Silicon Valley Bank. And, and we're studying it. And I guess they're going to come up with a report. Well, and to add to what you're saying, um, if you're one of those very large depositors and you had been counting on supervision, maybe a little bit the implicit guarantee, you do have an alternative and it's called money market funds. So now we, we already had one reason for depositors, small or large, to move their money, namely that large commercial banks hadn't really adjusted interest rates on deposits while the increase in the federal funds rate, short-term interest rates, has made money markets funds much more attractive than bank deposits. So that was already a big reason taking money out of banks and into money market funds. If you add to it a concern about this, if I go into a money market fund, as long as the fund is obeying the rules, I should be invested in short-term treasuries or something of a very low uh, risk. And so I may just decide to go there. And I think that's a dynamic the Fed hasn't completely thought through. Those are good points. In fact, maybe we can kind of uh, segue into that to thinking about implications for uh, the structure of the of the the banking system, maybe the structure of the financial system. Because um, one thing that we saw right after the failures of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and um, Signature Bank, the New York Bank that also failed that weekend is we saw deposits flowing out of smaller banks into larger banks as presumably the depositors and the smaller banks got nervous. And um, that seems to have stopped. Um, it's, it's not completely clear whether this is the calm before the storm, some people think, or whether um, in fact we, we've uh, weathered the storm and things are gonna be okay. But maybe we can talk about whether that's a problem, because as you mentioned, you know, we have thousands of banks in the US and, and other large countries managed to get by with many fewer banks. So should we be concerned if it were the case that the deposit outflow from small banks to large banks were to continue and some of those small banks then had to close their doors and we ended up with fewer banks. And so, you know, small bank in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania say closes, and um, a, another branch of Wells Fargo or Chase or something opens up, maybe literally in that same building, would it matter? Should we care about that? Well, it's a super interesting question. And I think the Fed, if I were the Fed studying something, the thing I would study is what do I want the banking system to do? And how am I going to imagine small business, mid-sized business, household finance occurring in the world that I seek. So the reason I say that is if, to your question, if deposits are flowing from smaller and mid-sized institutions to say JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, that from a depositor's perspective may be fine, uh, but from a local, uh, say small business borrower or a mid-sized commercial real estate project or an apartment building, the financing may be very different. You know, one of the reasons um, 
a number of economists believe the recession may be coming faster and perhaps a little deeper than we thought is in addition to tight money, we now have a, a credit supply uh, element to it. Um, the bulk of commercial real estate loans are held in the small and mid-sized banks uh, around the country. And so if we want to evolve to a system where there's a different way of financing, let's say commercial and industrial loans for businesses or commercial real estate, that's fine, but we don't live in that world at the moment. And so I, I think it's going to be a real issue for the Fed. So I, while a depositor may not care whether his or her money is in local bank, JP Morgan Chase, or a money market fund, it may make a lot of difference for investment. Yeah, we talked some more in the money and banking book where we have more room to talk about banks than we do in principles, but we do talk some about how um, so-called relationship banking, how a smaller bank, you know, if, if Glenn and Tony open a, a bank in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and uh, over the years we get to know the local businesses, we may be um, gathering private information that might be difficult for a larger bank. Um, to, to gather. So in effect, there's sort of a, a market niche there. If you think of it in economic terms, you know, we talk about there being asymmetric information that throughout the financial system, any borrower knows a lot more about the borrower's circumstances and uh, whether the borrower is likely to pay the, the loan back than, than does any lender. And as a result, lenders are more cautious and there are certain loans that may be economically efficient to make, but they don't get made because the lenders are, um, are unable to uh, correctly assess how much risk there is. So you could make an argument, and certainly small banks make the argument, and you hear small business people, it's kind of anecdotal, but a lot of small business people will say, well, you know, I needed to, to borrow $80,000 to renovate my restaurant or my small factory or whatever, and I couldn't get a foot in the door at the local Wells Fargo or Chase or whatever. But the bank of Glenn and Tony, they, you know, I've been working with them for years. And so they had more information and they were willing to, to make that loan. So I guess it depends to what extent you buy that argument that there really is this niche that we want filled, right? That there it would be it's economically more efficient. And that it really is the case that the smaller banks have an advantage over the larger banks because they built up these relationships over the years. And if the bank of Tony and Glenn closes and a Wells Fargo comes in that spot, it's a very different sort of thing than if Tony and Glenn had been running a pizza parlor and we failed because our pizza dough was too chewy or something, or <laughs> there was a bitter taste from the tomato sauce and a pizza hut opens there and we would say, well, that's just the market working, right? That people didn't like Glenn and Tony's pizza. They prefer Pizza Hut and that's an efficient outcome. But if Glenn and Tony's bank fails and therefore some of our loan customers can't get loans, then you know, that is potentially a problem that policymakers need to think about. Yeah, it's interesting because... Um... Hiking the deposit insurance limits should help the local banks. Certainly, households generally and um, outside of big money center areas in the country aren't holding more than two hundred and fifty thousand. And even payrolls for small businesses 
you know, a hiked cap could cover. So that's probably solvable. You know, another policy idea that comes around is trying to match more closely assets and liabilities. Mervyn King, who was governor of the Bank of England uh, a few years ago, you know, made that proposal. Um, it's very similar to Milton Friedman's famous narrow banking Chicago plan uh, proposals. It's the way insurance companies operate. The problem again is maturity transformation may be important. Somebody needs to do that financing and telling a bank, just go match your assets and liabilities would tell a bank to go, you know, hold it short. Well, if I wanted that, I could just go to a money market fund. I don't need to pay for all the infrastructure of a bank. So I think this is complicated and I think the Fed is going to have to study it. So hopefully we're through the worst of it. Yeah, maybe we can look at, at some of the bigger issues then, uh, because as you know, there's been a, a call for more regulation. Certain members of Congress have said, well, banks need to hold more capital because if they have enough capital, then they can meet a deposit run better than Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were able to do. And maybe there's this kind of getting in the weeds that there are these in a period like this, when interest rates have risen quickly, it means that the market value of loans that banks are holding that they made at, at lower interest rates and securities, as Silicon Valley Bank had a lot of longer-term treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities, whose market value has declined, but for the loans and also for at least the bonds that they, they designate, they're holding just to maturity, which means that they're not going to sell them, they're going to wait. So if the bond they, the bond has a face value of $1,000, yeah, right now, because it's a low interest rate bond and investors can buy high interest rate bonds, they'll only pay $960 for it or whatever. But not to worry because when it matures, we can hold all the way to maturity and we get the $1,000. So who cares that for a while it was at, at $960. But some people have said, well, you know, we're not providing enough information and so maybe we should force the banks or require the banks to so-called mark to market. So the bank would have to say, yes, these commercial mortgages that we gave out at 4% interest are not worth as much because if we made them today, it'd be 8% interest and these treasury securities are not as much. So that would have to show up on their balance sheet, their income statement that they had taken these losses. So maybe you can talk about that, but but there's kind of the bigger point that I thought that Jamie Dimon, who is, of course, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase made, and he said, well, if we're going to go into opening up regulation, and this gets back to a point you made earlier, maybe Congress needs to think through which types of financial firms they want doing different activities. And he says that you know, if you if you make it more costly to be a bank, you make us hold more capital, you put other regulations on, then some of the stuff we're currently doing is going to leave. And as you pointed out already, we've seen a lot of deposits moving into to money market funds, which have more assets today than I think they've, they've had in their history. So what do you think about that? I mean, should Congress say, okay, you know, we really need to think through rather than just sort of tack on some additional regulations to the existing structure, we need to rethink some of these big issues on what we want banks to do and what we're willing to have other financial firms that aren't banks do. I think it's a huge point that uh, Jamie Dimon has made. 
you know, there's a, a cat and mouse game that we talk about more in the money and banking book between regulation and financial innovation. So every time we change something, the institutions themselves innovate. To me, it's not obvious that regulation is the issue here or capital. You know, when you have contagion in a run, you could hold twice as much capital, three times as much capital. You may not be able to stop a systemic run. So I'm not against having reasonable capital requirements. I just don't think it necessarily is the solution to everything. And what happened with Silicon Valley Bank looks more like a failure of supervision than it does a failure of regulation. But to the core of what Diamond is saying, we really do have to figure out what we want these institutions to do. Because as I mentioned before, when you asked, does it matter if we have small and mid-sized banks? It depends who you think is going to do the financing of all these loans. So I, I think this is a time for serious study for all of us in teaching. It's also a time to remind students that, you know, different borrowers are getting credit in different ways. Households, small businesses, large businesses, some not from banks at all. Uh, to uh, Diamond's point, too, about, uh, you know, not just over-regulating banks, we know for the global financial crisis, part of the problem was we were focused on banks, and then we moved things into shadow bank activities. And once again today, you know, many people are worried about, do we know enough about what's going on outside the banking system? You know, when interest rates went up a lot, I think last time we were together, we talked about Warren Buffett's aphorism that you don't know who's naked swimming until the tide goes out. Well, the tide went out for them too. And so we may see another shoe drop. So I couldn't agree more. Yeah, there was actually one thing that he mentioned that, that I hadn't really kept track of, and that is the extent to which banks have gotten out of the business of making residential mortgage loans. And, you know, as we, we talk about in, in, in both the books, both the principles and the money in banking, um, mortgage lending had basically evolved to the point where the banks would originate the loan, meaning you would walk into your bank and you would take out the mortgage and the bank would then sell the loan often to one of the government sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae, uh, Freddie Mac, uh, Ginny Mae, and so on. Uh, and then they would service the loan, meaning that you would write out your check to Chase or Wells Fargo or whoever it was. And they would pass those funds along then to whoever they had sold the, the mortgage to. And so banks would make a little bit of money on that. But um, since the financial crisis, banks have found that to be a less and less desirable thing to do, in part because they're on the hook for making the payments if, in fact, you don't make your mortgage payment that month. The bank still has to come up with that dough and make it. And um, so it's become risky. And they've also required to hold some capital against those, you know, their, their payment obligations on the mortgages they're servicing. And for those two reasons, banks have really stepped back. So if you look at the numbers, banks are originating, the, the loans that banks originate these days are, are mostly so-called jumbo mortgages, right? Where it's, it's above the amount that Fannie Mae will buy. It varies from, from city to city, but it's like $750,000 or $900,000, depending on where you are. And it seems as if the only reason they're really even making those mortgages, which they hold on their books rather than selling because they can't sell them, is because they like the relationship. You know, if there's a billionaire who wants to spend $40 million to, uh, uh, to, to buy a, a house in Beverly Hills and, you know, needs a mortgage on that, 
you do it because you're hoping the billionaire then gives you, you know, some of his or her money to manage and, and you have other relationships with him. But the, the result of this, is, as um, Diamond points out, is that we have non-banks now originating uh, a lot of those mortgages. And, you know, a lot of the, the non-banks of your rocket mortgage or, you know, one of the other firms that, that does this, and some of them a lot smaller than rocket mortgage, you know, we don't regulate them as closely. They often are more thinly capitalized. So we've sort of inadvertently, I think maybe one of his points was that, you know, it wasn't that Congress decided, well, yeah, you know, let, let's push mortgage lending out of the banking system. It just, as the regulations were put on, and as you point out, you know, we have these, these cycles of regulation followed by, uh, innovation and changes in the financial system. And then Congress says, wait a second, we're going to regulate it again, particularly if there's a crisis. And then we go around and around. And sometimes the decisions made have, have been um, not looking at the bigger picture. And this would be an example that we really want so much of mortgage lending to exit the commercial banking system. And the answer probably is no, at least people weren't making that argument, but it's what ended up happening. Yeah, I agree. It's really a rethink moment. I mean, the same could be said for banks not making markets in treasury securities, which has led to oscillations at times. So it's for us in the teaching of this, it's actually an interesting time, but it's also a little concerning. It is because a lot of times in teaching, I think we also can step back and say, you know, what is the financial system? What's its purpose? Rather than just sort of going right into what is a bank and what does it do? We can sort of look at those bigger pictures, which give students, I think, the tools maybe to interpret better what's actually happening in the economy and in the financial system, what the issues are that are at stake here. Great, Glenn. I think that we've had a good discussion there, and we've given some food for thought for instructors and students as they think about what's been going on in the banking and financial system. So we want to thank everybody for joining us again for this podcast. And if you want to, you can go to hubbardobrieneconomics.com, hubbardobrieneconomics, all one word, .com. And you can see our blog where we regularly um, put updates about what's been happening in the economy. So thank you very much again for listening to us. And we'll see you next time. <music>